if you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now I have been doing, working my way through, working our way through Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, but I wanted to just take a break from that because I wanted to look at um, um, Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through to 11. And we read, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil person from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear, and not again do such wickedness as this among you. So, fairly severe words there that we've just read. Now, there were very strict rules or laws under Moses when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Or more to the point, there were very, very harsh punishments. Rebellious children were to be put to death. Those who were caught in adultery were to be put to death. I mentioned a few weeks ago the man who was put to death because he went and collected wood on the Sabbath. And that seems quite harsh, especially in light of the fact that Jesus had an altercation with the Pharisees about healing on a Sabbath. (coughs) As we know, Jesus challenged the Pharisees and said, which of you would not rescue your ox if it fell into a ditch on the Sabbath? 
which of you would not do good on the Sabbath? And healing is clearly good. So it seems harsh that this man should be put to death given what Jesus said about the Sabbath and that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was for our benefit. It was to give us rest on the seventh day. It was to ensure that we didn't get burnout. Now, of course, we didn't use... The term burnout isn't actually in the Bible, of course, but people have always suffered burnout or exhaustion. Um, It's just what we call it today. So it seems a bit harsh, but we don't know this man's heart. And I pointed that out when I spoke about it a few weeks ago. He could have rebelliously gone out and collected wood. He could have done so in defiance of God. He may not have even believed that there was a God. And he could have said, no, I'm just, who is this Moses to tell me what to do? I'm going to get wood on the Sabbath. Those could have been his words or thoughts. That could have been the intent of his heart. And that is quite different to the challenge that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were against Jesus doing good on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were against doing anything on the Sabbath. But that is quite a different matter to one who rebelliously goes out and gets wood. So that's one example of the severity of um, the law. I mean, there's a couple of examples also in the book of Deuteronomy, we don't need to turn there, of men who did wrong in the sight of God. One example was a man who took plunder from the enemy And the Lord singled this man out through a process of elimination. And that man, even though he was quite contrite, probably because he got caught, he, all his family, all the livestock he owned, I think even his servants, and every tent and piece of property were destroyed. Now that is a very, very severe punishment for covetousness. And I can only say that... If we were under the law, I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't be here today, and I don't know about you. It's not for me to, not for me to judge. But that is pure law, and that is pure justice. What we deserve. So, in all cases, the harsh punishment served one purpose, and that purpose was to purge the evil from Israel. And there were two steps in this. One literally removing that evil. So we saw how that man was literally removed from Israel. And the other man who coveted and took the plunder from the enemy was literally removed. Everything connected with him was destroyed off the earth so that he would not have any descendants whatsoever. Very, very, very severe. So he was literally removed. And second... This was used as an example so that others would fear and they would not commit the same sin. So the sin was purged from Israel. And when the assembly saw this, when they saw the Sabbath wood collector getting stoned, punished, they would think twice about collecting wood on the Sabbath. And at the same time, the wickedness was literally removed from Israel. But we know that this is not the whole story. And we know that it didn't work out this way. 
And God knew that it didn't work out this way. From the very beginning, God knew that it wouldn't work out that way, that people would stop sinning because they saw an example of what happened to someone who sinned. Because the law does not bring righteousness. <clears throat> As it says in Romans, the law convicts us of our sin. The law shows us that we are sinners. We can't obey it. We cannot obey the law. We might be good on some parts of it. We might not be covetous um, naturally. We may not um, have a problem with looking lustfully at others. But we may have a problem with losing our temper. We may have a problem with gossip, with lying. I don't know. And as it says in the book of James, if you break one part of the law, you are a debtor to the whole law. So the law does not bring righteousness. It doesn't change the heart. It simply shows the heart for what it is. So Israel was under the law. There were elaborate rituals for dealing with sin. Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, wave offerings, grain offerings, all sorts of things that, um, that people atoned for their sin. They were able to atone for their sin through these various different offerings. And all these were shadows of the ultimate offering which was to come, that being Jesus, who died on the cross and took the punishment that we deserved. He paid that price. So as I said before, the problem was the heart, the heart of the people. So the wicked doers, they were purged from Israel. Those left behind were estranged from sin for a time, only for a time. So we know that um, these examples were there to um, cause enough fear in the majority that they would not commit the same sin. And it may have worked for a time, but the hearts of the majority of Israel were astray. And the lesson that people learned would have faded after a time and they would continue in their sin. This was a well-established pattern throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Judgment, repentance towards God, restoration, time moves on, forget about God and back to sin. Eventually this led to exile. Israel, the northern kingdom, was exiled first and then Judah, the southern kingdom, 100, 200 years later, exiled. And um, when the, uh, of course, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel wasn't actually restored. It's, we have Israel today, um, but the northern kingdom was never restored. And I guess that's where you get the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel. And cults arising claiming to be descended from these ten lost tribes. We don't know who they are. We know that those who came back from the northern kingdom of Israel, who were part of the northern kingdom, were exiled and then came back to Jerusalem, became part of the Jews. And of course the word Jew, Jewish, comes from the word Judah. But anyway, when the Jews came back to Jerusalem and it became Judea and then came under the Romans... God's judgment was still upon them and um, Jerusalem was overturned in AD 70 as Jesus foretold. 
So precisely for this reason, not because Jerusalem got overturned, but because of the wickedness of the hearts of the people, God sent his son, and he was the ultimate sacrifice, because whoever, whosoever believes on him has eternal life, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So we live under grace, not under law, and we should be very thankful for that, extremely thankful. Now, of course, we know that that does not mean that we can do what we please. Paul says, should we sin that grace would abound more, God forbid that that should be the case. Absolutely not. Rather, God deals with us in a gracious way. So God disciplines his children when they sin. Now, obviously you might sin and then you instantly regret it and you repent there and then. Um, ask God to help you not do whatever it was you did again. Maybe you got angry with a driver in front of you or whatever in a car. It's amazing how the car, when you're driving, brings out the worst in you. Um, certainly does in me occasionally or whenever. But God disciplines his children when they are perhaps in habitual sin, when they're in unconfessed sin, when they're doing things which are totally forbidden in the Christian life. I mean, throughout the New Testament, Paul tells the believers, Paul, the other writers tell the believers, live righteously, put on God's holiness, do not commit any immorality, etc., etc. <coughs> and um, the apostles... When they heard about the uh, believers who were trying to put a yoke, or the false believers who were trying to put a yoke on the believers, saying you have to obey the law of Moses to be saved, said no, we are saved by grace. But uh, abstain from sexual immorality and blood and animal sacrifice to idols. Other than that, there were no rules. You were to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. But an example in the New Testament of how God deals with uh, his children who are in sin was the man in 1 Corinthians who was expelled from the fellowship because he was having an affair with what seems to be his stepmother, his father's wife. So he was expelled from the congregation just as the um, evildoers were expelled from the community of Israel, either by being literally expelled and cast out and cut off, or by being stoned. Now, the um, man was expelled from the fellowship to protect the fellowship, but also for the man to come to his senses to be disciplined so that he could repent and be restored. And at the right time, he was brought back into the fellowship and he was restored. And that is the grace of God, that he wasn't just stoned. If he'd done that under the law of Moses, he would be dead. So now to the actual text itself. So, those within the assembly of Israel, they're no different to us today. They're, they are human. They, sorry, they were human. We are human. They are the same. They obviously don't know about electric cars or things like that or Facebook. But other than those kinds of surface cultural things, we are the same. And if they saw an electric car, they would just think it was some kind of magical chariot without horses. 
So because of that, because their nature is the same as our nature, because they are human and have the sin nature, we can learn from them. So we must ask ourselves, what would induce someone to rise up and say, let us follow a foreign god, a god that we don't know, and serve that god? What would induce someone to do that? And I'm not an expert on the matter of the gods of the Canaanites, the surrounding nations. But I think I'm right in saying that those gods were different to the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah. They were quite different to the true God. The gods of the surrounding nations induced immorality through things like fertility rites. They also induced people to sacrifice their children to the fires of Molech and other gods. I mean, this is seriously evil. So it's fair to say that the motives of the dreamer, of this, this prophet, were false. Uh, were sorry, were of the false prophet were impure, to say the very, very least. Now. Um, At this time, this was known as the Judgment of Canaan. Now, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, and there are many other places in the Old Testament, which depict what we today would call genocide, God ordered the Israelites, the children of Israel, when they won against their enemies or or, um, beat their enemies, they were to not leave one living person. Every man, woman, child, all livestock was to be totally destroyed. And um, a lot of people today, a lot of atheists and so on, have used this as evidence that there can't possibly be a God. What a cruel thing to do. (coughs) And of course today, we see genocide as a particularly heinous sin. It's murder on steroids. It's, It's just totally beyond anything. What's happened in Israel with Hamas slaughtering innocent uh, civilians is totally condemned um, by just about everybody. I know there's a f- there were a few people who said, oh, Israel had it coming. But generally, most decent people, all decent people said this was wrong. Everyone recognizes that the Holocaust was evil and wrong. And Holocaust deniers say, yeah, the Holocaust would have been terrible if it had happened. But it didn't happen, so therefore Hitler wasn't so bad. Hitler wasn't so bad in some people's eyes because he didn't do what everyone else said he did. Anyway, so the point being that genocide is seen today as particularly evil. So how do we account for it in the Old Testament? And so this is a bit of an aside, but it's within the context of what's um, going on with the children of Israel. And there are two schools of thought. The first school of thought says this. Yes, it may have been written in the Bible that um, the children of Israel wiped out whole communities, totally and utterly. And it happened, or probably happened. But that doesn't mean that God ordained it. And they would argue that people like Joshua and Moses had particular assumptions such that 
wiping out whole communities was okay and that it's the kind of thing that God would ordain. Therefore, they would write that God told them to do it, whereas in fact God didn't tell them to do it. And that's the first school of thought, that while genocide may have occurred in the Bible, or it may have been written about, it wasn't God's doing. Though there is a problem with that school of thought, because it's clearly the case that God ordered it. Now, if someone like Joshua or Moses records that God ordered this to happen, and God didn't order it to happen, then how can we say that it's the word of God? How did God lose control of that part of the story? If it was the case that Joshua said, we must kill every man, woman, child, etc., it would have been recorded that Joshua went in and did X, Y, and Z, killed every living being, but God did not order this, because, God is, because the Bible is not shy on showing us other people's disobedience. And if it had been an act of disobedience or it had been some kind of assumption or something, it would have been recorded there. Otherwise, how can we trust the other parts of the Bible? So those who were taking part in the crusade in the 12th, 13th centuries, wanting to recapture Jerusalem from the Muslims, they would say, oh yeah, definitely that's the word of God, all that slaughtering, absolutely. They would have said yes. But for us today, it offends us because... We see things very differently. But that doesn't alter the fact that God ordered it. So the second school of thought says that basically God is sovereign and while generally speaking genocide is evil, this was known as the judgment of Canaan. The Canaanite nations were unspeakably evil and this was a judgment that was brewing against them for several hundred years. God alluded to it with Abraham and said to Abraham that the full measure of the judgment has not come against them. So this was a judgment. And a judgment in a nation often uh, means that innocent people are caught up in it. And the reason God ordered this was because he wanted everything connected with these nations completely destroyed. And God is sovereign. So while it may make us feel uncomfortable, God has did have his reasons and it was part of the judgment of Canaan. So, this was um, the context in which this happened. And this was the context in which these dreamers arose and said, let us worship these gods. Now, so it's not just that these dreamers, these false prophets, wanted everyone to forsake God, which is a passive thing. You know, you can forsake God, you can ignore God, or whatever, which is like a passive sin, not doing what you should do, i.e. not worship God. They wanted the people to actively follow the foreign gods and obey them. These foreign gods who they do not know. And normally... When a prophet, um, or normally when a sign comes to pass, or a prophecy proves to be correct, this is the proof that the prophet was of God. But even in this case, when a sign comes to pass, and yet the prophet declares something totally and utterly evil, 
they are to be ignored. Not only ignored, but um, stoned to death. And we could argue this is what is like with the false teachers today. Many false teachers show us signs and wonders which appear to be supernatural, or which are supernatural, but from the wrong source. And also we know from Matthew that many will come to him, Jesus, on that day and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many good works in your name, etc.? And he will say, be gone from me, I never knew you. So what these false prophets and what these dreamers want people to do is the exact opposite, in effect, of what we are told to do in the New Testament, which is put off the old man or old woman and put on the new man or woman. Of course, the New Testament uses the word man in the generic sense, person. Put off your old self, the flesh, put on your new self. The old self is being, is being corrupted each day, but the new self um, by the, enables you to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. But those false prophets of Pang were saying, sorry, put off the old God with his rules and regulations and put on the new God or new gods with their exciting things. And of course, some parents may have been quite happy to sacrifice their children to the fires of Molech if they were. Yes, it was, it was quite wicked. So think how evil someone must be to actually prescribe that. That's the context. And so no wonder God prescribes such a harsh punishment. And this was even the case if the dreamer or the prophet in question was your spouse, or your child, your sibling, your friend. Very close people. Even then you were to not pity them, but you were to put them to death. And you were in fact to be the first one to cast the stone. That is how very serious it is. And that is why these punishments were so severe. Because the sins that, were, uh, that, were, that God prescribed death for were actually very serious sins. But we needn't be so smug today um, and look down at these children of Israel who did all sorts of things and the Israelites later on who did all sorts of wickedness in the eyes of God because we are no different to them today and they were given to us as examples. Um, God, as we know, has strong things to say about idols. Strong things to say about sorcery and divination, etc. And these are supernatural things. They come before God. People sought information about the future, which came from demonic sources. But, as I said, we needn't be so smug, because an idol needn't be a supernatural thing. It's anything that we put before God. Anything that we get addicted to. So if there's anything like this in your life, um, an idol, etc., then in a sense, well, I should say we, I don't want to point the finger. If there's anything in our lives that we put before God, then in a sense, we are like the prophet, or the false prophet, and the dreamer. No one, or very few people will think to themselves, I think I will put Facebook before God. I think I will put 
this habit before God and I will serve it and not God himself. No one would, or very few people would say that explicitly because no one wants to think of themselves as having idols in their lives. But in a sense, you say you might say such a thing in your heart. So, if we have anything in our hearts before God, then we are, in a sense, the same as these dreamers, or the same as those who would follow them. But the tricky thing is this. While the definition of an idol is simple, anything that you put before God, how do you know whether you put something before God? How do you know if something is an idol? I could stand here. I don't like social media much myself. So I can stand here and say, oh, yeah, Facebook is an idol. Instagram is an idol. X is an idol. And Elon Musk is like the Antichrist. I don't know. I don't know. I I should be careful what I say about people. But I could say that these things are idols and you shouldn't touch them. But what if I'm a hypocrite? And you might use Facebook reasonably. You might, you know, have Facebook in its place. There's nothing wrong with reasonable use on Facebook as long as you're not tied to it, as long as it's not an addiction. If you use it sparingly to put nice things on it, and we can use Facebook for godly things as well. And we have our um, Bible um, uh, fellowship message group, which is very useful. But I could have an idol in my life, um, like, I don't know, I don't like sugar, I'm, I'm trying to cut sugar out of my life, but it's not proving easy. Um, so I could say social media is an idol, yet I have my own idol. So it's actually very difficult to stand here and say, that's an idol. Like, um, the actual key thing is to ask God, what is an idol in my life? Show me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if I start saying this is, but that isn't, then, well, who am I? And I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I would end this sermon to challenge you to ask God to show you where you have done what these so-called prophets have done. Where you have put something ahead of God and said, I will follow this instead of God. And although the words have not been explicitly stated in your mind, they may have been stated as such in your heart. So, on that note, I will end, and I thank you, Lord. Um, I do pray that you would show us where there are any idols in our lives. And um, we know that things like Facebook and so on can be very good and useful if used reasonably. But we pray, Father, you would show us anything, anything that appears good and that isn't intrinsically sinful, you'd show us if that's an idol. And of course, if there's things that we're caught up in that are wrong in your sight, that you would show us, um, that you would show us. We thank you in Jesus' name.